check, check. Can we just give them a round? Is that not beautiful? <laughs> Kristen uh, threatened to leave my mic on when we sang. I said, better not do that. <laughs> um, just real quick before we get started, as you know, uh, Emily announced this two weeks ago, but we have this event coming up for women's ministry, or the women's, what are we, women, for us, <laughs> on Saturday, November 4th. It's called Chilled But Filled, and Christy Keeling wanted me to announce that they're still in need of women to decorate tables in the holiday theme. So if you're interested in doing that, you could probably just um, email her or Mary Wallace or register online to decorate a table. And Becca, where's Becca? Where's Becca? Becca Simmons, one of our own, is our speaker for that event. So that alone is worth coming for. So um, so just to get started, if you don't know me, my name is Leanne Berta, and I've had the joy of being in Lambs now for, how old is my daughter? Eight years. And I joined the speaking team a couple years ago, and I've always said one way Satan always gets to me before I lecture is he comes to me in my dreams. And so I was sharing with a few people about how this past month, I'm sorry, this thing's wobbly, and this past month, he started invading my dreams again. And I'm being kind of funny, but I kept having this recurring dream that when I lectured today that I would keep cursing on stage. And I was like, this is awful. And I told my husband, and he was like, yeah, that's terrible. That'd be really bad if you did that. And so I thought, I should just probably tell y'all in case it should happen. You know it's not me personally, but I have been taken over by a demon. So anyway, I just wanted you to know that um, just in case. No, I'm totally kidding. But let me pray and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, may my words be pleasing to you, Lord. May we each just leave here with just this deeper understanding of this rich truth that we've just studied in the past hour, Lord. I pray that you would um, just bring a calmness over me and that I would just say exactly what you want me to say. In Christ's name, amen. So... Just to kind of, I have two podiums too, so it's, I'm, about to, I'm about to teach right now. We got two podiums, I got a lot of stuff going on, but um, just to kind of go back, so we started in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, and as we know in 1 Peter 1, Peter was reminding all of us of the glorious riches that we have in Christ Jesus. He was reminding the exiles of Asia Minor all that Jesus has done, had done for them. And then he goes on to tell the exiles to remember the riches of Christ. And then he begins to extensively talk about this personal holiness. And Emily did such a great job two weeks ago diving deeper into what personal holiness looks like. And now we're going to transition to chapter 2. But before we go into any of the scripture, I'm a big believer in going deeper into context of things. So my daughter's in third grade, and they're doing this new curriculum this year for English language arts, and one of the big changes is they're going way deep into the context of a story. They're trying to get the kids to go and find the who, what, when, where, how, all of those kind of things, so they can understand the deeper meaning of every single passage. The first few weeks, Rachel would come home. She'd have written on her paper, dig, 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 dig deeper, dig deeper. So I think For right now, what I want to do is I think we need to go a little bit deeper into the context 
of what was happening in this region. We need to understand the environment in which Peter was writing about. And we touched on that the first week in talking about how Nero, who was the emperor over Rome, how evil he was and how he was persecuting the Christians. But I think we need to go into the context a little bit deeper because I think if you can see it from a different perspective or a deeper understanding, we'll read this letter differently. So I actually checked out a book on Nero. It was kind of boring, but um, (laughs) he was a very evil, evil man. He was a madman. He was not sane. But the one chapter in the book was my whole point of reading it was, why did he persecute Christians? And not only why did he persecute them, but how. And I always tell my kids this, like when they watch things, like you can't unsee what you've seen, right? So that's why we're so protective over what we watch, what we say, where we go. And so I hate to put imagery into your mind, but I think it's one of those things we need to go there because I think it's going to help us understand why did Peter hit home so much about the glorious riches of Christ? So just to understand, 64 A.D., This is 64 years after Christ had ascended into heaven. Nero set Rome on fire. The reason he set Rome on fire is because, I mean, there's different reasons, but the main reason was he wanted to build a new spectacular Rome where he got all the glory and he got all the credit. He wanted a new palace. He wanted all this. Remember, he was a madman. And so he set Rome on fire. He had people go out and he set this whole city, this massive city on fire. And as Rome burned down, it was said he was playing his fiddle. He was not concerned about it in the least. So keep that in mind. So what happened after it quit burning is obviously everyone started to blame different people. And people knew that Nero had done it. So he had to shift the blame from himself. So he shifted the blame to this new group of people with this new religion called Christians. Now, Remember, Nero did this, but he wanted to get out of the punishment of setting it on fire. So all of a sudden, all of Rome, all of Asia Minor, all around hated Christians. So what Nero started to do was he started to go into their homes, and he would drag them out, and he would kill them. And this is how he killed them. The number one way that Nero would kill them is he would dip them in wax, And then he would set them on fire attached to a pole. And he would put Christians in a circle in his, like, I guess, palace, like gardens. And he would have a party, and they would burn. That was his favorite way, the book said he liked to do it. Another way is he would put dead animal skins on the back of believers. He would tie it around them. He would put them in a ring with animals, and they would be eaten alive. He especially liked to do that to Christians' children. And you can only imagine what he did to women. He did everything that you could possibly imagine that someone would do to a woman. So this just gives you some context into what was actually happening at this moment this letter was written. It's a hard thing, but I think it helps us to understand it wasn't like they just lost friends. It wasn't like they were unfriended on Facebook because of a Christian quote. These people were ripped out of their homes and set on fire. And here's Peter in the middle of it. So keep in mind, this book was written around 64 to 67 A.D. Nero set fire to Rome, 64 A.D. And it's best believed that Peter was martyred, um, crucified upside down around 67 A.D. So this is all happening right now as we're reading it. 
So does that help give you a little bit of context? And he's not just writing it to a little bit, persecu- a little bit of persecution. He's writing it to people who are being ripped out of their homes and getting ready to be set on fire for their faith. So that is where we pick up today. It's encouraging, isn't it? But it's necessary. It's necessary for us to understand it. And so we begin in the end of chapter 1 where we see four instances where Peter is talking about God's precious word. We see it um, repeatedly in chapter 2. But before I go there, I want to read something to you really quickly. Sorry about that. My notes are out of order. Sorry about that. Um, It's okay. I'll find it. Um, So we get to uh, chapter 1, and there's four different occasions where he's talking about the word of God. And what he says in in verse 22, he says, obedience to the truth. And then he says that you were not born a perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. And then you skip down to verse 25, and it says, But the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So it's four incidences where he talks about God's word. And then we get in to 1 Peter 2. And we're going to skip the first sentence, but we're going to go on to... um, Uh, verse 2 where it says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so what we're seeing here in verse 2 is a really interesting concept of this spiritual milk. Now, Paul uses this term quite a bit when he's talking to believers in uh, Corinthians. And really, when Paul used this term of spiritual milk, it was almost like a rebuke, like you should be past this elementary teaching. Uh, But Peter uses the word in a very different context, and it's the only time it's used this way. And what Peter is saying in this particular passage is that you should have this intense longing or craving for the word of God, like a newborn baby. If you've had a newborn baby, they want to eat all the time. You cannot sustain their appetite. And that is what he, that's the way he's using this word spiritual milk. That's how he's saying it here. There should be this intense longing and craving for spiritual milk because you have tasted the kindness of God. You know your salvation. And so you put them together and it says long for this since you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. And on your outline, I put repeatedly Peter is showing us that the word of God is our continuous source of joy in life. Repeatedly, Peter is showing us that the Word of God is our continuous source of joy in life. We should, as believers, be developing this appetite for God's Word so much that we crave it, that we cannot separate our life on a day-to-day basis from God's Word. A baby has to have milk to sustain itself, to live. That is how we should come to the Word of God every single day. And then let's go back to verse 1. So we go back to verse 1, which we talked about this morning. So, put away, therefore, put away these things. And, you know, we could go into detail. Malice, hypocrisy, envy. Insert anything into that sentence. And you'll see that what Peter is trying to say here is that these things cannot coexist in your heart. You cannot desire to taste and enjoy God's kindness and goodness, and fl- that cannot flourish in the same heart where there's malice and envy and jealousy. This is something that we're always going to have to fight against, this fleshly desire 
and this eternal desire. But we fight against it, ladies, because Jesus is so much better. And then we transition, and we move on to verse 4. So we've gotten this really rich teaching now from Peter into treasuring God's word and letting it just flow over us, that we should eat it and drink it and taste it because of our glorious riches. And now we move in to verse 4. And in verse 4 it says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Remember that word precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house. So this is a reference to the church. To be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in me will not be put to shame. So we're going to stop there just for a second. I think that the beauty of verse 4 is that he calls this precious. If you see that, that in the sight of God we are chosen and precious. This new term, a living stone. We are that living stone. Stone. And I put this in in your outline, but I was reading up on Spurgeon, you know, just with the Reformation going on. And the very first sermon he preached, he was 16 years old. And he chose for his very first sermon the text, 1 Peter 2 7. And what he said was Spurgeon said that he didn't think he could have preached on any other Bible passage, but Christ was precious to my soul, and I was in a flush of my youthful love, and I could not be silent when a precious Jesus was the subject. And I thought, what a cool illustration. And then we move into verse 6, where Peter's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. So many times we see Peter quoting Old Testament because a lot of his audience are Jews, and they're going to understand this Old Testament scripture. So behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. That's Jesus. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I think the point of him saying this is if you put your hope and your trust in Christ, we will never be dissatisfied. John Piper has a great quote that says, This stone will not prove faulty. If you build your life on this stone, your life will not crumble in the storm. If you hide behind the stone, you will be safe. If you stand on the truth of the stone, you will not be ashamed. If you join with others in the spiritual house built on this stone, you will be proud of your foundation and your fellowship will stand. What a beautiful way to say how we stand on this cornerstone. And then we move into verse 7 where it says, So the honor is for who, those who believe and those who do not. I'm sorry. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This precious stone then is for you who believe. And the way this word is translated is it basically says it's a preciousness. Isn't that an interesting word? A preciousness for believers. So if you believe on him, then he's precious and he can never, ever disappoint us. And going back to these verses 4 through 7, the Old Testament used a lot of imagery talking about the rock. Like you can go back to Deuteronomy where it says God is the rock. And then we, in the New Testament, Jesus is described as the rock. Um, many times, uh, I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip. I went on a mission trip to Dominican Republic like 12 years ago, and we didn't have any equipment. So what they would do is they would, like the scripture says, they would put down stone in one corner, and then they would run these plumb lines at like a 90-degree angle. So this plumb line would be attached here, and it would go straight out, and then it would go out here. And then what you would do is you would build 
against that plumb line to make sure it was straight. You don't want to build crooked. But you had to anchor it on one rock, right? So you see the imagery here in Scripture is saying our cornerstone is Jesus. And then we build out from that. We are the living stones. This phrase living stone is only used in the context here in the book of Peter. Peter is assigning life to something that is not alive. A stone is not alive, but he's giving life to it. And basically what Peter's saying is this new temple purpose was not speaking of a temple like in Jerusalem. It's, which was made up of gold and costly stones. This temple is made up of living materials of redeemed people. So now we're the living stones as people in which God now resides because we have the Holy Spirit in us. So I thought that was a really neat way to see that. Um, going back up just a little bit, I love this verse in Acts four eleven through 12, where it says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. A very popular verse, but one that shows this cornerstone. And as we got into verse 5, we see this shift to where Peter is now, as he's referring to us being these living stones being built up, we're starting to see this individuality into this church. Do you see? We are individual stones being built up into this thing called the church. And on your handout, I, I, I love this idea of Christ being our foundation. So the church was built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and we are the living stones that individually make up the collective church. Peter gives us these truths so we can see that our role is far bigger than just our individual giftedness. He's given us this understanding of us being the spiritual house built on many stones in which we need one another. Acts 2.47 says, You build a building, one stone, one brick, or board at a time. God is building his church, and he's doing so one living stone at a time. Isn't that a neat imagery? One stone at a time. And then you see Ephesians 2.19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And he goes on to say, being joined together, growing in a holy temple to the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And we could go on and on and on. I mean, I I could have probably listed 40 verses about this. But just to show you that is repeated over and over in Scripture that we are these individual stones that are being built up. And it's a beautiful thing. Uh, One thing that I think is important, and I I was talking to someone this morning, is our spiritual health and maturity affects the entire church. We should desire, as we talked about in verse 2, we should have this desire to continuously grow. We're going to grow through being in God's Word, but it's going to take discipline, and it's going to take habits that we form so we can do that. But what do I mean by it affects other people? Well, I think it's two things. If you picture us linking arms together and us going through this whole process of life, when I stumble, who's going to pick me up? I need to be linking arms with you. We need community. We need each other to do this. And so another way to look at it is, and and 
Emily and I were talking about it and where she said, you know, when I see other people serving well, it encourages me. It encourages me to want to serve better. It encourages me to want to do more for Christ. And I think that's another way to look at it. We should be encouraged when we look at other people serving so well. It's not meant to be envious. It's not meant to be jealousy. It's meant to be this encouragement to one another. So we need to be spiritually strong for the church. And then we see this shift, and this is what I like to call our wealth, our glorious riches because of our precious salvation. And we don't cover verses 9 through 10 today, but I want to read them to you because if you go back to verse 5, you'll see that it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, which is like our good works for the Lord, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And then on to verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not have mercy, and now you have mercy. So what are we talking about here? The only one I really want to focus on today is this holy priesthood. So verse 5 says holy. Verse 9 says royal. What I want us to see is that we should never, ever question our identity in Christ. Look at what I wrote out for you. This is just off the top of my head based on these verses. Listen to this. You are chosen. You are holy. You are gifted. You rule. You reign. We do Realize that one day we will rule and reign with Christ. We have position. We have divine power. We have ownership, forgiveness, mercy. We have a title. We have wealth. We are capable. We have important work to do. We are sitting in the heavenlies. We have complete access to Jesus himself. Complete access. So let's talk a little bit about that. And I'm going to get back to our wealth part. But I want us to see... Um, when we talk about this royal priesthood, this was a very big deal in the Old Testament to be part of the royal priesthood. The main privilege or weight that a priest would carry was that he got access to God. So under Old Testament law, only the priest could go into the holy place to offer up sacrifices or incense. And only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. And between the holy place and the holy of holies was a veil. A lot of you may have heard this before. And only the high priest could go into the holies of holies, and that was once a year. And you probably heard this many times that the priest would attach a bell around their ankle out of fear that what if they did something wrong or what if they didn't offer the sacrifice correctly, they could be struck dead because it was so, so holy. So think about that in your mind. One person for the whole nation of Israel got to go into the Holy of Holies. Also, priests served as mediators. They offered the sacrifices, they represented the nation of Israel, and they offered up praise. They had these special ways that they offered up praise offerings to the Lord. But now, but now under the New Testament, we don't have that. The believer is his own priest, this holy royal priesthood. We don't need a mediator anymore because we have our high priest who is Jesus. There can no longer be this elite priesthood with special claims to access to God. There's no special privileges in worship. Only 
set aside for the priest. See, this was fulfilled by Christ once for all. You can read about that in Hebrews 9 and 10. And when he died, the veil of the temple was torn. So literally, the time that Christ died, the veil tore. It went away. Now we get to enter in the Holy of Holies. We have this relationship. As a New Testament priest, if you have believed in Jesus, if you have believed, you are a New Testament priest that's called royal and holy. And now you get to enter in. You have full access to God. See, this is mind-blowing for the Jewish people because they didn't live under this. And all of a sudden, Christ is coming in and he's redefining this entire priesthood. This would have shocked so many. And that's why when you see in verses 7 and 8, it's a stone of stumbling and and a rock of offense to so many. They couldn't see that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the functions of the Old Testament priests also included sacrifices, these praise sacrifices. And now praise is something we get to do all the time. We don't have to go through a priest to offer, to offer up an offering of praise. And not only does praise benefit the one who offers it, but praise benefits the one who hears it. So our testimony of our praise of what Christ has done is part of our royal priesthood. That is something we have to remember. So when we speak about this goodness and kindness and love of Christ and what he's accomplished through his shed blood, his death, his resurrection, we get to speak on it because of the authority that we've been given through him. And on your outline, I put your worth is built on eternal riches. These eternal riches, what I listed on that page, your ownership, your divine rights, your wealth, All the things that we think on this earth, like what are we trying to obtain? We've been given all these through the eternal blessing of Jesus Christ. See, he has all these things. And how amazing is it that all of a sudden he transfers all of these things to us the moment that we believe? It's kind of unbelievable. And I think, I mean, I know being a woman, so many times we struggle with our worth. We struggle with our identity. We struggle with so many things. And if I could just remember this, if I could just pull this out every time I struggle with it, and I would see every single thing that Christ has labeled me to be, would I live differently? And I guess that's my question to all of us. Will we live differently if we believe that this is our wealth and our worth and our identity? And I think that we will. I want us to understand that it's all because of Christ. We should never doubt our identity. And because he did all of this for us, the moment that we believe, it should propel us to worship, shouldn't it? So that we can now, as verse 9 says, proclaim his excellencies. Listen, I don't want us to forget today the power that we've been given because of our rightful, rightful position in Christ. I want, listen to this. This is this is unbelievable, but just listen. Okay, Matthew 26, 53. You want to know how powerful your Jesus is? I'm about to tell you. This is unbelievable. Okay, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be arrested. And you know you know the story where one of his followers cuts off the ear of the guard who's coming to arrest him. Immediately, Jesus rebukes this follower of him and says, Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. And they all kind of stop because they're getting rebuked. But what I want us to understand is, do you know what a legion of angels is? This is what's so mind-blowing. One legion of angels is 6,000. And Jesus says, do you not think that my father would not send me more than 12 legions of angels? 
So if one lesion is 6,000 times 12, 72,000 angels, just like that, at his voice, they would have come and they would have done whatever he asked them to do. Okay, so we have another little uh, nugget about an angel that we learn from Isaiah 37, 36. And in Isaiah 37, 36, it says, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 men. Okay, if one angel can strike down 185,000 men, how many do you think 72,000 angels can strike down? Well, I'm going to tell you. 72,000 angels could annihilate 13 million, excuse me, 13 billion people just like that. I mean, there's, that's double the amount of people who live on this earth. So what I want us to see is do you understand the power that Jesus has that has been transferred to us because of our position in Jesus Christ? This should be amazing to us. I'm telling you, when I read that, all I could think about was, why do I not live in the power that Jesus has given to me? Maybe that's the question you're asking yourself today. And I hope that this encourages you. Before we close, okay, so this is a little non-traditional, but it's something I wanted us to see. So, okay, I went to NC State, and, um, you know, they haven't always had the most stellar football But this year, they're having a really good year. So I was watching these videos online of NC State football last week. And I stumbled upon this video. And apparently, there is a coach at NC State who's known to give these pep talks before they go out on the field. I mean, you know, if you've played sports, like, you know, you get the rah-rah in the locker room. Well, apparently, this coach is kind of amazing. And he gives the best pep talks. So... I actually want you to see this pep talk, and then I'm going to I'm gonna do a little, there's a spiritual element to this, I promise. I'm going to do a little spin on it after it's over. But my question to you is, are you in love with football? This thing right here has changed my life. It's changed my life. This is the only thing that matters today. It's life-changing. Go out and get it. It's yours. It's life-changing. It's life-changing. If you want it, go and get it. The next man got it. You want it, go and get it. It's life-changing. Took me out the hood. Got me a college degree. Got me a master's. Listen, play for one another, man. Seniors, this is your last go-round. You don't get to play Syracuse no more. What an amazing, amazing opportunity. You know, historically, NC State has gotten up for the big games in the not-so-big games they hadn't done too well. We in history. We now. Enjoy the now, fellas. It don't happen like this often, man. Enjoy the dude next to you. Play for the guy next to you. All right, got a story to tell you. Close your eyes. There was a little boy. All right. And throughout the little boy's life, people often told him that he wasn't tall enough. They told him that he wasn't fast enough. They told him he wasn't strong enough to play Division I football. He wasn't quick enough to play Division I football, and slowly this young man developed a callous heart. He started working out harder. He started getting stronger. He ended up getting that Division I scholarship. He made it to college. All right, in his first two, three years of college, they had some rough seasons. They had some very difficult, hard, and challenging seasons. All right, all right. Throughout his life, people constantly told him that he wasn't good enough, that he wasn't good enough. 
Look up, look at me. You guys are that little boy. And you got coaches here that believe in you. You got coaches here that believe in everything you do. You are good enough. You are strong enough. You are fast enough. You are equipped to go out there and be great. Darian, I love you, dude, and I know what it's like to lose somebody you care about, man. And we're going to go out there and play for you. If you have no other reason to play, play for Roseboro, man. Play for Roseboro. Brother, that's, that's, that, that's difficult to lose, man. I know it hurt. I know it hurt, man. But we're here for you, brother. We're here for you. We're here for you, bro. I constantly tell my players, I constantly tell them, you don't rise to the level of the occasion. You rise to the level of your training. And you guys have been trained very well. Thunder has done a great job. Coach D has done a great job training you guys for this very moment. People don't think you're ready. People don't think NC State can constantly do this on the road week in and week out. You guys have been trained for this very moment. Live it, man. Live it. It's special. Live it. Believe it. It's special, man. Because it don't come around often. It don't come around often. It's hard to come by. It's very, very hard to come out. When you get in that moment, you cherish it, man. You cherish it. You believe in one another. You fight for one another. And you look to your neighbors, your left, and say, count on me. Count on me. You tell them, count on me. Count on me. You tell them, count on me. Count on me. I love you guys, man. I love you guys. Show up. Get us a break. Hey, family on two, family on two, one, two, family. Okay, so I love that video for many reasons. But I decided to do a little spin on this video. And as you know, we've been rewriting scripture all year. So I rewrote this little speech, and I want you to picture me. I'm Peter. All of you are the exiles. We're all gathered together, and I'm going to give you this speech, and I'm redoing it, okay? My question to you today, exiles in this room, do you love Jesus Christ? Are you in love with Jesus? This book right here of God's Word, it's changed my life. God's word has changed my life. This is the only thing that matters. If you want it, it's yours. It is for everyone who believes. Listen to me again. This is life changing. It took me out of the pit. It gave me eternal redemption and it set my feet upon the rock. It gave me life purpose. It gave me a rich inheritance. When, sorry, we get to do this life once. What an amazing opportunity that Jesus Christ has given us to labor for him, to proclaim his grace, his mercy, to proclaim proclaim his love and his resurrection. Don't just live for the mountaintop moments of your life. Live for the day in and day out and see his mercies every day, even in the days and the months and the years that others oppose you. Enjoy your co-laborers in the gospel. Listen, love, love, love the church deeply. We are set apart and we need each other to run well. Do not listen to Satan's lies. Do not let him tell you that you are inadequate, that you are incapable, that you are useless, that you are worthless. Do not believe his lies. Do not get a callous heart, but let your knees be callous from prayer and your hands be callous from working diligently for the Lord Jesus Christ. You will endure hard, difficult, long seasons where you wonder where God is. You will suffer. You will have pain. But Jesus is there, and he suffered more than we could ever, ever imagine. 
Our great high priest understands. You are equipped to go out there and be great because he has given you everything that you need for godliness. He has given, th- given you everything that you need to persevere, lock arms with the other saints and support each other. Be there for each other. Hold each other up when pain comes. It is time, dear exiled saints, to rise up to your training. Nero may be king of Rome, but Jesus is king of the world. You have been trained. You have his eternal word. You are ready and you are equipped. Listen to me. I, Peter, I knew him. I knew him personally. I knew him intimately. I denied him three times and he never denied me. He, he came to me after he rose from the dead. His spirit now lives in me. He came to me and he told me, go and build my church. Listen, he is so worth it. He is worth our pain. He is worth our torture. He is worth the ridicule. He's worth us losing friends, family. He's worth us being exiled. He is worth our isolation. He is worth our praise. He is worth our full devotion. He is worth the physical and emotional stress that we are suffering. He is worth us giving our very lives because he knows how to give his own life. He is the living Christ. Dear exiles, hold fast to these truths because I have seen the resurrected Savior and he is glorious. And I believe that we have received the full measure of the word of Christ in his word. We have everything that we need, ladies, to go out there and to live as his royal priesthood and to proclaim his excellencies. And I am confident of this promise from Psalm 27, 13. I'm confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for him and be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. And lo, I am with you to the very end. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you today for reminding me that everything that I have comes from your hands, Lord. Thank you for the words of Peter who was living out these words in the day-to-day, Lord. Thank you for the encouragement that not only did he give the exiles, but he's still giving us all these years later, Lord. I pray that we would use every gift that you have given us to spread your fame in this city and in this world, Lord. And I just pray now, Lord, that your word would go out and it would not be void and that we would remember, Lord, that we would remember your goodness and your kindness and that we would continue to want to thirst for you through your living word. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.